God, thank you so, so much for being so incredibly good, God. Thank you for loving us in spite of us, God. We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy that we sure don't deserve. We thank you for your healing hand, for your strong hand, for your mighty touch, God. I thank you that you let us come boldly into your throne room of grace, God. I thank you, Father, that you hear and answer prayers. Lord, I thank you for Catherine and the many that are, that are better, God, for Jerry and getting the stones out, and Lord, even for Travis and, and Alan and God, just so many that you've touched, that, that they are getting better, Father. And Lord, I know there's many more that still need a touch, God. There's many broken homes and broken marriages, God. There, there's many prodigals and waywards and things going on in lives and financial issues. And God, you know them all, Father. And I pray, Lord, would you intervene in each one. God, I pray you'd help us, Father, to be faithful, God. I pray you'd help us, Lord, to, Lord, to, to be a lighthouse, God, that when people see us, they see your light in us, God. No matter how bad our situation is, God, I pray you'd help us, Father, to, to always represent Christ, that people see your goodness in everything we do. God, I thank you for this book, for this precious love letter that you wrote us. I pray you'd open it up tonight, God, as we look here in the Acts of the Apostles and the letter that you wrote to us, Father. I pray you'd teach us something tonight, God. I pray you'd give us strength. I pray you'd help us to walk out a stronger Christian, more eager and more willing and, and better equipped to serve you, God. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we left off Acts chapter 9. We were talking about the, the amazing miracle that God did in Saul of Tarsus. I don't think it's any surprise to anybody that that would be considered an incredible miracle in the Bible that Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the church, became the Apostle Paul, wrote 13 books of the New Testament, used mightily in the formation of the church, not just the formation of the church in the beginning, but, but we still have the letters of all the things that he did in forming the churches today that God took Saul of Tarsus and made an incredible man of God. But we left off talking about one simple fact, that Saul of Tarsus is no greater miracle than yours. Saul of Tarsus is no greater miracle than mine. Every one of us in this place have our own road to Damascus story. Every one of us in this place, one day out of nowhere, Jesus Christ showed up, presented himself to us, offered through the Holy Spirit the forgiveness of all sins, and said, my grace is sufficient, and allowed us to become children of the living God in spite of all of our sin, all of our past, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our wrongdoing, everything that we've done, God said, you're now my child. It all starts over now. Old things passed away. We are as great of a miracle as anything ever done in this Bible. What The miracle that lives in you and I is as great as any healings that Jesus did when he walked on this earth. There is a miracle living in you. Anybody say amen. We look in the mirror every day. It is a miracle by God's grace. And that's where we, we left off a couple weeks ago talking about it. But if you remember... When, when we got saved, the same thing happened with the Apostle Paul that happened with us. Everybody wasn't happy about it. We, we had friends that were like, what? What are you talking about, man? What, what, what do you mean you're not going there anymore? What do you mean you don't do that anymore? Everybody wasn't happy about the change. Well, you were. I was. Our, our parents, the ones that prayed for us, they, they were, but everybody wasn't happy. You have the same thing here. Verse 23 tells us exactly how the Jews felt about Saul of Tarsus getting saved. It tells exactly about how the Sanhedrin felt. It says that after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Isn't it amazing how fast mankind can turn on each other? 
Isn't it amazing how fast your friend can become your enemy? Isn't it amazing how fast people can change their mind, decide they no longer like you, can change their story and change how they act? I, I've been studying a, a, a little bit about doing things for the glory of God. Everything that we do, we need to do for the glory of God. Anything else is in vain. Anything for self-gratification, I'll be honest, anything I do for you is still to be done for the glory of God. It's because if what we do for each other, we want to make things better for each other. We want to do things because we love each other, but we want people to see Christ in that. So everything is done for the goodness of God, for the glory of God, and not to be seen of men or to be applauded by men. And the Bible talks about those, when you get the pat on the back, when you do it to be seen of men, and you get your pat on the back, you have your reward. So I had a thing come up on my phone, and it said you might be interested in this. And the reason it said you might be interested in this is because it was a YouTube video about the Georgia Bulldogs. So imagine why that would come up on my phone, right? So it's an interview with Kirby. And Kirby, they're asking Kirby questions about repeating. Hey, national championship, you know, Georgia, 40 years, yada, yada, all the stuff. You know, how much pressure is on you to repeat? How much pressure is on you, da, da, da. And he's talking about the SEC. In the SEC, it is true in football, but, but it's no different in life. He said, you know, in, in the SEC, the stakes are always high. It is always, what have you done for me lately? It's never about last year. It's always about now. It's not about what have you done a year ago. It's what are you doing right now. And he said, one of the things that's true is it doesn't take long for a pat on the back to become a knife in the back. I thought, whoo, man don't even know, but he just spoke prophecy. He's sitting there thinking he's talking about SEC and football, but that's just the truth of life. It doesn't take long. If you're doing things to be pleased to men, I can tell you one thing. I don't know why I'm even going to run this rabbit, but I'll go ahead and put it out there. People call the church. People always want help. People want you to do things for them. People want financial stuff. People, it's, it's always it's something, it's something, it's something, it's something, and you do everything you can to help people. You try to help people with power bills. You help them with, 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 with well, we don't really do a lot of phone bills because I think it's something you can live without. I, I think there's more important things that the church needs to help people with. So if your phone's about to get cut off, you probably need to call somebody else on that. But there are things that will help with, and, and, and you're trying to help, you know, with rent to keep people in the house. And, and you do all you can, but there are parameters. I'm sorry, but the truth is the church didn't take people to raise. The Bible does talk about taking care of the widow and the orphan and all that stuff and do everything you can. But you, you could bankrupt the church on, on some folks if, if you let it. Because they're always there with a handout. And, and it truly is a pleasure to help people. But you can help people, help people, help people, help people. And the first time you go, we can't help with that, you're the worst so-and-so on the planet. I called down there to them hypocrite bunch of so-and-sos, and they wouldn't even help me. They don't talk about the $1,000 you've invested in them in the last four or five months helping out. I called and needed this right there. And besides, it probably ain't even talking about what the real deal was. I, I'm, I'm just telling you. Well, I don't even know why I'm getting off and all. I'll, I'll stay out of stuff. I usually, when I get out like that, that's when I wind up getting in trouble. But, it, but it, does, it doesn't take much for people to turn their opinion of you. All it takes is for you to just not do something exactly pleasing to them, and all of a sudden everything changes. Well, the case here with Saul is they've gone from patting, patting him on the back to wanting to kill him. 
I mean, he is the favorite son of the Jews. He is, he is part of the religious elite. He's well known by the Sanhedrin. They absolutely love him. And now here they are, they want to kill him. And what we see here is that Jews are going to follow the religious elite. They're going to follow that Sanhedrin council, the ones preaching that Old Testament law there. And, and what we see through the rest of Acts as we study is with the exception of a handful, when you talk about addition and multiplication of Christians in reality, it is a very small number of Jews that ever become Christians. For the most part, they cling to that, that Old Testament. They're the ones that have rejected Jesus Christ, crucified him on the cross, and now they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. So what we see is that the Jews here in Damascus, they've set a trap and they want to kill Saul. Anybody remember why Saul went to Damascus? To kill Jews. Now, to, or to kill Christians. Now you got him, although he is a Christian because of his road to Damascus experience, and the Jews want to kill him. It says in verse 24, but their laying weight was known of Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. The same ones who crucified Jesus, the Jews, are now looking to, to kill Saul. And it says the disciples took him by night, let him down by the wall in a basket. So Saul has spent... A short amount of time here at Damascus preaching among his people, preaching among the Jews. Remember, many of the Jews went to Damascus because they were trying to get away from the persecution of Saul at Jerusalem. So they fled Jerusalem to get away from the persecution after Stephen was stoned to death. And so now he's there trying to tell them about Jesus Christ. But it doesn't take long till, till things change so that he now begins to go out and preach to the Gentiles. Verse 26 says that when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now, you got to remember back two or three weeks ago what we saw from Paul's own handwriting. This is a true story. This is how it happened. It just leaves out a three-year stretch. Paul told us, Galatians 1.18, that after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Remember, Saul said that he went to Arabia for three years. He went and he learned about the gospel. He didn't learn from another man. He didn't learn from the apostles. He went and spent time with the Holy Spirit. He was taught by the Holy Spirit. He stayed in Arabia. Then he went to Jerusalem. Now, I'm, I'm sure when he got back to Jerusalem, there was a big stir going on when news got around Jerusalem that Saul's back in town. You know, there's been a lot going on. He left to go kill Christians, and now the Sanhedrin's heard that he is a Christian, and now the Jews want to kill him, and I'm sure there's probably some confusion in Jerusalem as to which side's true, but now he, he shows up. There, there's no doubt the disciples have heard it. You can rest assured all of the church has heard that, that Saul is, is back in town. They've heard about how Saul has been preaching in the synagogue and how he's been preaching about Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that, that the Jews who wanted to kill him, they've heard about it. They've heard about how he escaped from Damascus. Now they hadn't heard from him. I'm sure a lot of the Christians probably still have some old feelings about him. Remember the last time they saw him three years ago in Jerusalem, he was stoning Stephen. He, he, he was trying to kill Philip. He, he was trying to find the apostles. He was there looking to kill or to imprison Christians. That would have been their last memories of him. That's the things that, that they know about him. That, that's the things that they remember. So Christians probably still have a lot of bitterness. What? Christians' bitterness? Yeah, that's right. Christians carry bitterness. Christians carry anger. Christians carry grudges. Christians backbite. Christians are the same ones that the pat on the back will turn into a knife in the back. 
Christians are the same ones, so here they are. They're worried about Saul. They've heard him come back from what we've seen in the text. It doesn't say anything about there's any correlation, any communication. For three years, we just know he's been in Arabia studying, and, and now he's back. But after three years, he is in Jerusalem, and he's not particularly greeted by the apostles. They don't even want to come see him. They're scared to death of him. He comes back. You've heard all that. You've heard that he was saved. You've heard everything that happened. Now, here he is back at Jerusalem. I don't know, kind of mixed. You'd, on the one hand, you wonder, why wasn't there a great homecoming? Why wasn't the church receiving him with open arms? Well, the truth is they're scared to death. We can throw rocks at him if we want to. But remember the last time they saw him, he's trying to kill them. So, so we have to be careful we go to throwing rocks because we don't really know where we'd have been on that side of the fence, where, where we might have landed, but... What we do know is that the disciples are afraid of him. The, the apostles, the apostles, they, they don't believe in him. They don't trust him, so they don't come near him. Even Peter. I was studying this, and I started wondering, where is the spirit of discernment? Anybody know what I'm talking about? The apostle Paul, which he still saw at the time, all that, all that transformation had taken place, the salvation has, the name change hasn't, Saul comes back, but, but the Bible talks about the spirit of discernment. Didn't John write, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and it, and it is the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you've heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Where's the trying of the Spirit? Where was this? I mean, did Paul not preach that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Yeah, no. Somebody shake that. Let me take them off one seat. Yeah. Didn't Saul preach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Didn't he say that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, met me on the road to Damascus and told all the stories? So we know that, that he believes that surely just a brief conversation by one of the apostles with Saul would have clearly connected their spirits. They would have felt the, the Holy Spirit joining together with just a little bit of conversation. I mean, Saul preaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God born in the flesh, that he died on the cross, that he rose the third day, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He, he confesses all those things. It just, it seems like it would have been easy for him to connect, but it says that none of the apostles even came to see him. They didn't even come to talk to him. Now, in studying these passages, I found two completely different point of views. I'll tell you which one I kind of side with a little bit. But the disciples at this point, they've not gone to the uttermost parts of the earth. They, they've not preached the gospel to all men. Why did God have to call on Stephen to be the first martyr of the Christian faith? Why did God have to call on Philip, one of the deacons, to, to go down to, Samaritan, to, to Samaria and preach to the Samaritans? Why did God have to, to call Saul? Why does he need Saul for an apostle? I mean, he already has 11 apostles, right? So, so why does one of the deacons have to become a first martyr? Why does Philip have to become the evangelist? And, and why does Philip have to leave from Samaria to go down the road to the south toward Gaza to speak to the Ethiopian man? Why, why does God have to use 
all of these people to do these things. He uses Philip to make the first contact with the Gentile world in that Ethiopian as he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and he baptized, and, and he baptized the Ethiopian. The truth is, here in these first, I don't know, first half of the book of Acts, and you look at the Acts of the Apostles, it seems as though maybe they're not getting the job done outside of, of Jerusalem. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just... It may just be that God is showing us how everyone has a part in the faith. That, that it wasn't just to be just the apostles, but it was everyone in the Christian faith. That it's not just supposed to be someone on staff or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, but it's everybody in the Christian faith. Everybody can be called up. Everybody is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and go out and do the work. I, I don't know. I know God ha has a plan in all of it. But if you remember, the command to the apostles was to go back to Jerusalem and wait there until the Holy Spirit comes, right? Right? Somebody talk to me. So on the 50th day, at the end of the seven weeks of seven, after the feast, feast of weeks, the 50th, the 50th is the number of the Holy Spirit. On the 50th day, the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit came, right? They spake in tongues. Peter preached. 3,000 were added to the church, right? So what was the commandment after that? To go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always. So the job was wait for the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit gets there, go tell the world. They're still in Jerusalem. Verse number 27, it says, But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now, so on the one hand, it may be like the apostles are there at Jerusalem and they're not getting the job done. They're, they're really not going outside of Jerusalem. They're obviously getting it done in Jerusalem but not going out. The other, the other side to it, remember what we looked at? The three years, Paul said, three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles, I saw none save James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. So he only saw Peter and James. He didn't see John, Bartholomew. He didn't see those. It's just, just the two. So, so that leaves one or two things. Either the apostles have gone out of Jerusalem, and they are doing the work, but it doesn't really talk about them out there doing the work. So I kind of tend to side with the other, that they're staying around Jerusalem. I can tell you why, because it says the only reason they didn't come around him, it didn't say they didn't come around him, because they were in other regions preaching or they were off doing missions. This says the only reason they didn't come around him is because they were scared to death. The only reason they didn't come around him is because they feared him. Remember back up 1 to verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he said to join himself unto the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. So that makes me think they're at Jerusalem. They just ain't going to come around this guy. You notice in the New Testament, there, there, there's a few names. There's a few names for the children of God. It's not Baptist. It's not Pentecostal. It's not Presbyterian. It's not Methodist. It's not Catholic. It's not any denominational name. It's not any divisional name. It, it's saints. And it doesn't matter what 
sign of a church you come under. If you come to God through Jesus Christ, through the blood and the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's called saints. It, the, the, there, there's names. It's called brethren. We are all brethren. We are all one. I, I know you women are like, how can I be a brother? Well, it's the same way I can be the bride of Christ. I don't get it either. You just got to go with the terminology. If I can be a bride, you can be a brethren. How about that? We, we, we are all brethren. We, we are all one, all pulled together. We're, we're all believers. As a matter of fact, we're still a little bit further over in our study that was at Antioch where we were all first called Christians. So, so we are all one in the body of Christ. Paul comes to meet the apostles and, and to share his story with them. Wouldn't you imagine on his way walking to Jerusalem, I wonder how many times his story went through his mind of what he was going to tell the apostles. Wouldn't you think he was thinking about that? Wouldn't you think he couldn't wait to tell Peter and John, I mean, the one whom Jesus loveth, the one that's in the bosom, that he couldn't wait to tell him about his 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 road experience there with Jesus Christ, and he's thinking all the way back, and then he gets back, and, and they, don't, they don't even talk to him. Barnabas. Barnabas. You know, the first time we met Barnabas was back in chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, who by the apostles was sure named Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. If you remember, that's the story that set in motion the story of Ananias and Sapphira because he brought the money because he wanted to help everybody and put it there in Ananias and Sapphira. They went and sold it. And remember, they brought a portion, but they wanted what? They wanted that pat on the back, so they held back part of it, and they ended up that, that God killed them. That, that's where all that story started. But notice his name there. It says that he is the son of of consolation. Boy, he lived up to his name for Saul, didn't he? I'm sure that was some consolation that somebody believed him. Somebody believed in him. Somebody believed in his salvation story. Even though the others wouldn't have anything to do with him, there was somebody there that would stand up against the apostles for Saul on his behalf. Wouldn't you think it would have been frustrating to Saul to come back looking to tell your story to the apostles, the one that walked with Jesus Christ, the ones that you would expect to understand the most, the goodness of God, the salvation of God, the forgiveness of God, the necessity of the blood, the reason for the blood, what salvation is, where it came from. Wouldn't you expect the apostles above all else to understand that? And, and he comes back and he can't even share his story with them? I would think it would be a little frustrating, but Barnabas, Barnabas did. Barnabas stood beside him, and if you study, one of the things you're going to see as we study through Acts, Paul never forgot it. He was a trusted companion throughout his ministry. Verse number 28, it says that, that he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. He spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. You know what, what's weird about that? That's the ones that Stephen was talking to. <laughs> That's the ones that Stephen was arguing with, and Saul had him stoned in that argument. And now Saul, it's like Saul has picked up Stephen's torch. He's standing there in, in a debate with the same people that Stephen was debating with, that Saul was on their side, and now you find him here taking up, taking up that same torch. You know, 
Stephen, the Bible says a lot of things of Stephen. It says that he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. He's a man full of faith and power. The Bible says he did great wonders and miracles among the people. He is a devout man. He's a man of honest report. But here's what he was not. He was not a man of learning like Saul. Remember, Saul is one of the most formidable intellects of the day. Saul is an incredibly intelligent individual. He is a trained rabbi. He is a student of one of the most respected doctors of the Hebrew law in all of Jerusalem. Saul is a very different threat to Judaism than what Stephen was. Now, they're both filled with the Holy Ghost. But when it comes to debate, you can debate with men, but Saul's not one they could debate with. Saul's incredibly smart, so they want to kill him. Verse number 30 says that when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea. They sent him forth to Tarsus. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago that after Philip baptized the Ethiopian, it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, that Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So just a quick review, Azotus uh, was what used to be the city of Ashad, one of the cities of the Philistines, about 20 miles north of Gaza. But it says from there that Philip preached his way up the coastal road to Caesarea. If you remember, we looked at the fact that was a, a city that was built by King Herod in honor of Caesar Augustus. Um, Caesarea, we looked at it, it was a very Romanized city. It was a Roman, uh, the capital of Palestine. It, it's the place where we're going to see Peter a little bit later in our study when, when Peter, matter of fact, we'll, we'll start on that. I don't think we're going to get to it tonight. We'll almost get to it. But, but when Peter is sent to Cornelius' house, he's sent to this same place. This is the place where when Philip went and preached his way up to Caesarea, this is the place where he chose to live. I'm putting all this in a circle because I want you to see something. Philip settled down. He got married. He had children. And because after he goes to Caesarea in chapter 8, the next time that we see Philip is going to be in chapter 21 when he is a host to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul on a missionary journey cycles back around to Caesarea. This is the escape zone right now. This is where the disciples got him out the window and let him down, and he's going there to get away on his way to Tarsus, but it circles all the way back around. Acts chapter 21, verse 8. We'll get there in, I don't know, a few weeks. But it says that the next day they were at Paul's company. The party came into Caesarea when we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. That's the place where the brethren brought him to, to to protect him. And then from there, Saul returns back to Tarsus. Where is Saul from? Tarsus. Circles all back around. Years later, he returns to, to Caesarea to be cared for by Philip. He circles back to stay in the house to be taken care of by the one he was trying to kill when he was in Jerusalem. Isn't God just amazingly good? Tarsus, when, when Saul goes back there, when, when I talked about Saul and his education, all that's there, Tarsus, Athens, and Alexandria, those are the three great learning centers of the Roman world. So th those are like university cities. So that's why Paul has all of his education. Then, then we come to what seems to be kind of a, a sustained period of peace. Almost cohabitation, if you will. Let me, let me pause before I read that. <laughs> because I was studying this. I, I see 
I see something in this verse, and, and I'm not really going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to read this, and we're going to go by, and, and then because of time, next week we'll get over with Peter. Let me read the verse and then tell you this. It says, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Matter of fact, I asked, I asked for a map. Larry may have a map. He put a map up. He's over in next door, and if he can do it, a map. I want you to see the areas that the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. You know, we've talked about these regions a lot. Remember we talked about when they were at Jerusalem? You see Jerusalem down there in Judea and, and how if they wanted to go to Galilee or any of them, that they would not go through the regions of Samaria. Y'all see this on the one behind me? Probably a little more visible on those. You see Samaria was right in the way. So you can see what I'm talking about. They had to go over to the river to go around the, the region of Samaria, not just to mention Sikar or Samaria, the, the towns. They wouldn't even go uh, in, into the region, some of them would cross the river over there at Perea and go up to Decapolis and cross back over just to keep from going into the regions of Samaria. That's how bad they hated the Samaritans. But Philip went there and preached the gospel to them. Jesus went there and met a Samaritan woman at the well. The, the grace of God is sufficient for all. But, but it says that in this whole region, when you read the Bible and you read in the New Testament, Here's the regions. Here's the names that you read. There's Philippi. There's Damascus up there at the top. There's all the names that, that you read about. That's all that's there. And it says that peace came on the region for the church. Here's what I see in that verse, and here's where I see it in our lives. God gave a time of peace for the church to catch their breath, if you will. I mean, think of the church. Jesus Christ comes in, and he certainly turns the world upside down, right? He comes in his preaching and his teaching, and, and all of a sudden it, it reaches the climax, and he's crucified, and he's on the cross, and it's like a big letdown. Three days later, Jesus is out of the tomb. He spends 40 days teaching the disciples and makes appearances for hundreds, and then he's gone. And Ten days later, the Holy Spirit shows up. I mean, wow. What a whirlwind of a year, right? You got all this going on, and they're preaching Christ, and Peter preaches, and 3,000 souls were saved. Matter of fact, in chapter 2 of Peter, it says that the church was added to daily. But when you look here in chapter 9 and look in chapter 6 and 7, it says that the church was multiplied. It was only added to in the beginning. Now the church is growing leaps and bounds, multiplication, and all this is going on. It seems like God said, okay, hold on. Let my children catch their breath. Let's slow down and take a little bit of time. Look, look at the words. Look at the word in there. <clears throat> the rest throughout all Judea and Samaria and were, were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Ghost. That word means to, to build. It means to confirm or to embolden, which means to become bold or to grow Encourage. That verse tells me that the Holy Spirit put the brakes on persecution for a while. He, he put a stop to a lot of the bickering, a lot of the arguing. It, it calms down for a while, and there's peace in the region for a while to give the church a little time to establish, to let Christians a little, give them a little bit of time to grab hold. Here's why that's important. That's an overall big picture of your life and mine. There are times when it seems like the gates of hell have opened against us. 
Anybody with me? There are times it seems like every demon of hell is camped out either in your house or in your yard. You can't get out of the door that something ain't going wrong. Every time you turn around, something's tearing up, something's breaking, somebody's got something to say against you. There's always something going on. It seems like everything in your life is turmoil and everything in your life is a struggle. But you've heard me say it a lot of times. There is no such thing as a storm that has no end. Every storm ends. They may last an hour. They may last a few days. Hurricanes may come in and the effects may last for weeks. But every storm has an end. That's life. That's this life. The church went through some storms in the early days. Man, I mean, the gates of hell is coming against it, but it will not prevail, right? We have the gospel. We know that. But can you imagine being a new Christian? Can you imagine the persecution? Can you imagine the whirlwind of trying to grasp it all? It's like God said, I'm going to let my church take time and catch their breath. It's important to remember because there's times in our life when God, God stops all that. We have a time of peace. We have, we have some time to just like sit down and catch our breath. And things get better and we need them. Because another storm's always coming, right? Sure, sure as the sun sets in the west, there's another storm going to rise up out of it. So, so it comes, but I don't know. I just, when I was sitting there, I, I saw that, that the churches had rest throughout all Judea. And I, I just, I saw what a picture that is of, of life and, and all that's there. So we, we have this, this story here, this, this, this amazing story of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the great apostle Paul, and, and then he goes back to Tarsus for a time. But, but then in verse number 32, it turns our attention back to Peter. And when we get back to Peter, we see the door of the church officially opened to the Gentiles. When, when you see the, the story with the dream and Cornelius and all that goes on, and we see the doors officially open. We've seen it portrayed a little bit. We've seen it when he went and talked to the Ethiopian, and we've seen it when, well, the Samaritans are kind of so-so. You got, you got some in there because they had mingled outside of the Jewish, the Jewish tribe, nation, and so you got some, let's just say not completely Jews, um, which would be the same thing as a Gentile. So it's a, it's, a great, it's a great deal for you and I. Anybody in here, Jew? <laughs> yeah, I ain't either. Which means it's a great deal for you and I because what it tells me is, is that the blood of Jesus Christ becomes available for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And I'm thankful that I'm a whosoever. So, Lord willing, we ain't got enough time to dabble off into Peter there at verse 32. Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up next week. Looking at Peter, I, I pray that God gives you something. I enjoy, I just enjoy studying, and you can't study it and not learn stuff. And, and I try to share some things I learn. I just pray the Lord gives you something that'll help you every day. I pray he craves some little something tonight. All it takes is a nugget, right? Man, if, if I could get one nugget every time I read, every time I heard a sermon, every time I listened to somebody teach, if I could get one nugget, I'd have a mountain of nuggets by now. So I'm very thankful anytime I get one nugget. When God gives me something I can hold on to. God, thank you so much. Thank you for loving us enough that you care about us. Thank you for loving us so much to teach us. Thank you for times of peace, God, that you show us. Even your church, you calmed things down. You gave them, 
gave them time to just settle down and have peace in all the region for a little while. Thank you for the peaceful times in our lives. <coughs> Thank you, God, that in the times of storms that you're always there. Thank you, God, that we know for a fact you'll never leave us, never forsake us, but you're always there. No matter what the situation, you're in the midst of. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.